Wasn't that great? Don't turn to it because it's not where we're going to be today. But while they were singing, these verses came to my mind from 1 Chronicles 25. Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and the sons of Haman and of Jeduthun, of those who should prophesy with harps and psalteries and with cymbals, and the number of the workmen according to their service was. And he goes on and tells about them, and in verse 2 he says, which prophesied according to the order of the king. Verse 3. Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun, Gedaliah, and Zeri, Jeshahiah, and Hashabiah, and Mathaniah, six under the hands of their father Jeduthun, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. Don't tell me that singing isn't ministry, because it ministers to our hearts, doesn't it, and brings glory to God. Amen. That's wonderful. Open your Bibles, please, this morning to the book of Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. Chapter 5. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. We're going to begin reading at verse 27. Luke 5:27 The word of the Lord says, And after these things he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. This morning we come, our Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we meet in his name and no other. We depend upon his presence in our midst, for he has promised where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We depend upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, for we know that you have sent him to teach us to take of the things of Christ and to show them unto us, to guide us into all truth. We know that you have sent him to open our eyes, and we pray that you would have complete liberty Heavenly Father, this morning we know you have it because you are our God and Lord. But we offer to you what is already yours, and we beg you and implore you in the name of Jesus Christ to speak to our hearts through the Scripture this morning, to touch our lives. Nothing would we hold back from you this morning. We give you that complete liberty to speak to us, to edify us, to build us up, to correct us, to change our lives, to forgive our sins, to do whatever needs to be done that our lives will be for your honor and glory. We pray these things in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I know you know about the Republican Party, but I don't know if you know about the Publican Party. This morning we're going to 
take a look at three men who belong to the Publican Party. And one time, uh, when I was here for a week of meetings, we did look at one of these men, the Publican, the Pharisee, and the Publican in the temple. And I won't belabor the explanation, because most of you probably already know or remember what a Publican is. The Publicans were also called tax collectors. You see, the Roman Empire farmed out the taxes. They gave it to men uh, whose job then was to collect the taxes from people in a certain area and to give those the tribute or the taxes, or they call it in the King James Version, the custom. He sat at the table of the custom. That means he had a little booth or table by the roadside where, where people came and went out of the city, and he caught them as they came and went and made sure that he got the taxes. Well, these people also, the Romans said to them, whatever you make above what you have to give us, you can keep. And that's how they lived. That's how they lived. So let's just make a, an example. Let's say you owed $150 tribute or 150 shekels tribute to the Roman Empire. Well, they would charge you 200 And 50 goes into the pocket and 150 goes to the Roman Empire. But these people who took this job were not Romans. These people were Jews. There were few people in the Jewish nation who were so looked down upon, despised, and distrusted, they were the pariahs and the social outcasts in the Jewish nation. There were few people who were worse off than them. Well, they say publicans and sinners, you see. Why does he eat and drink, verse 30? Why does he eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Good question. Well, that's the way they were always grouped together, publicans and sinners. But the publicans were considered to be the traitors, the turncoats, the backstabbers, the defectors to the enemy. And that's what Matthew was. When he gives you his name here in Matthew's Gospel, and this is the first of our three publicans we're going to look at this morning. When he gives you his name, he uses his Jewish name, his Hebrew name, Levi. Levi, which is, as you know, from one of the 12 tribes, a very common name to this day in the Jewish community. You'd be surprised how many names there are out there that tell us of Jewish roots. Who know, who's ever heard of the last name Cohen, C-O-H-E-N? It means the priest. It comes from that. Well, there are many names like that, but we're not going to go into that. This, this fellow, Levi, you see him here as the Lord comes out of one of the cities in Galilee. He's in Galilee in the north of Israel, and he's coming out of the city. He's had a, a conflict or a conversation with the people over the healing of a man and the forgiving of his sins. That's in the previous part of the chapter. And as he walks out of the city, he sees Levi sitting there. Now, the Lord's been ministering in Galilee. Everybody in Galilee knows something about him. So when the Lord says to Levi sitting by the table at the receipt of the custom, that means the tax collectors, the publican's table there, the table that when everybody walked by, they covered their face or talked to their friend this way or hurried up or they took another road hoping that the tax collector wouldn't see them and call them and say, uh, I believe you have an account here. The Lord walked right up to that table and he looked at Levi and he said, let me introduce myself to you. Is that what he said? He didn't have to introduce himself. Our Lord needed no introduction. 
Our Lord didn't go up and begin some kind of a philosophical uh, discussion with him about the place of government and human affairs and all of these kind of things. He didn't ask him what political party he belonged to because it didn't make any difference. The Lord said one thing to him. He said, follow me. He didn't say, believe nice things about me. There are a lot of people in the world today who call themselves Christians simply because they believe some nice things or they have some warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus once a week when they go to church. Christianity is not knowing things about Jesus. True Christianity is following him. It's a personal commitment to him. And so we have this man here. He's way up in the north in Galilee, and he's sitting by a table. He's sitting at a table by the roadside. He didn't get a private interview with the Lord. The Lord walked right up to him and said, follow me. Now, why would the Lord say that? He would say that to him only because he knew that Matthew already knew who he was. It's impossible to follow Jesus without knowing what you're getting into. There are a lot of people who in a hurry, in an emotional moment, in a meeting or under family pressure or social pressure, their friends, or whatever reason, might make some kind of weak, half-hearted commitment. You know, I, okay, I believe in Jesus. Am I a Christian now? Or as John Denver said when he was smoking dope up on the, uh, in the Rocky Mountains and they saw a, a meteor shower that night and he said later on, and that was it. He said it was so wonderful. He said this this exhilarating feeling we had as we stood up there and, and watched the meteors all around us. And he said, and that was my experience, born again. Another person told me about how they felt uh, when they were uh, serving in a foreign country in military service. And they were all alone on a base and had no friends on the base and so far away from their family in a completely strange environment and began to feel depressed, depressed, depressed and sniffling and crying and feeling sorry for himself. And then he said he thought about God. He thought of God, and he asked God to help him, and he started laughing suddenly. And he said, and that was my experience, born again. See, this is what the devil loves to do. He loves to take good words, Bible words, scriptural words, and he likes to take them and twist them around and dilute them to the point where they don't have any meaning at all anymore. When Jesus Christ walked up to that table where that man, Levi, Matthew, was sitting and said, follow me, he said that to a man whom he knew, knew who Jesus was. He was known all over Galilee. He'd been speaking in the synagogues. The people knew him. He'd been healing, just as what happened here previously in this chapter. Go back and read chapter 5 and you'll see it. Everyone in Israel knew who Jesus of Nazareth was at that time. And so when he came up to him and said, follow me, he was speaking to a man, first of all, that most people wouldn't speak to. Most people would consider it a good week if they never had to look at or face or speak to a man like Levi. The Lord walked up to him and he spoke to him. And you can never get yourself in a situation in this life where the Lord Jesus doesn't want to speak to you. He does. He comes to us. Look at that. He came all the way down from heaven earth, born of the virgin. He came all the way up north to that country of Galilee and he walked up to that table where that man was. That man could have gone to him in the synagogue. That man could have gone to him at the house that he was staying at, one of the houses, the disciples' houses, like Peter's house. 
He could have sought him out, but he didn't seek him out. He sat there at his table. So Jesus went up to the table, and he looked him in the eye, and he said, follow me. It wasn't a threat. Follow me or else. <laughs> it was an invitation. It was an invitation. And the Lord Jesus does that today. Matthew, at his table, speaks to us this morning about people. He illustrates for us people who know something about Jesus. They know something about the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't do anything about him. They've heard. They know the story. They know the gospel. I hope most of you here, maybe all of us here today, know the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again from the dead according to the scriptures, raised again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen. He was seen by over 500 people at once. The gospel story and the message of the gospel tells us who Christ is and what he did for us and calls upon us to believe it. And that's why we use the word, the very biblical phrase, obey the gospel, because the gospel calls upon us to believe it. And until you believe and trust in the Jesus Christ, who is the only and the central person of the gospel, you haven't obeyed the gospel yet. You might know the gospel. You might memorize the gospel. <coughs> you might quote the gospel. You might feel good about the gospel, but you have to obey the gospel. And that day, the Lord walked up to the table of a man who was busy at his business, who was completely taken up with his commerce. And he walked up to him, and he interrupted his life. And God may be doing that very thing to you today. He may have arranged a meeting with you today. You might be here for that reason, because he's walking up to you through this passage, through Matthew, through what we have in front of us today, and he's saying to you, don't be a spectator. Follow me. He knew things about Jesus, but he hadn't acted on it. He hadn't done anything. And so Christ came up to him and he gave him a unique opportunity. A unique opportunity. He didn't walk up to everybody and say that. But he did to this man. And he had to decide quickly. He couldn't say, well, we had a man do this one time in Spain. Uh, he was watching an evangelistic television program. And he called in and, uh, to ask a question. He wasn't sure about what it meant to be a Christian. And the person who answered the phone began to speak to him, explain to him, uh, read your Bible, read in John's Gospel. And he began to explain the Gospel to him. And he said, now, would you like to trust the Lord? And he said, um, I don't know, wait just a minute. And he put the phone down and he said, honey, honey. And you hear a woman's voice on the other side of the house, Siguez! You know, they're speaking Spanish to each other. What? What is it? Yeah, there's a man on the phone. And he wants to know if I want to trust Christ. Ah, déjale de tonterías. He said, ah, don't get involved in all this foolishness. We already go to Mass. What do you need to trust Christ for? Oh, don't be talking to people like that on the phone. He said, okay, sorry, uh, I have to go now. And he hung up. The Lord Jesus didn't say to Matthew... Ask your family if it's okay if you follow Christ. Go call your business associates and your Roman superiors and present the thing to them because obviously if you follow Christ, this is going to be changes. 
So you go talk it over with them and see if we can work something out, come to some kind of agreement or understanding, and then you get back to me about it, okay? Here's my cell number. Speaking in 21st century Silicon Valley language. Or here's my email. Get back to me. Matthew had to decide quickly. Life's most important decision. And he had to make it quickly. Think about that. Those of you here today who know the gospel, who know what Christianity really is according to the scriptures, not according to a lot of churches we see, but according to the scriptures, you know what it is. You know what the claims of Christ are, but you haven't done anything about it today. Matthew, at his table, has something to say to you. He says, get up and follow the Lord. Stop dilly-dallying around, trying to decide, fidgeting and worrying how you're going to make the decision and what people are going to think about it. See, Matthew could have done that. He had a lot of enemies. But before he thought about his enemies, he probably thought about his job. He's, he's a tax collector. He's a, not only a tax collector, a dishonest. They were all dishonest. They charged people too much. They were putting it in their pockets. They had a lot of enemies. So what about his job? Well, if I follow the Lord, what about my job? Let's see. If I follow the Lord, what about my friends? Who were his friends? Who were his friends? Well, he had friends. Did you read with me when we read it? Verse 29, he made a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and others, as it says further down the next verse, publicans and sinners. That's the crowd he ran with. He had friends, but they were just as bad as he was. What are you going to do, Matthew? What are you going to do, Levi? Jesus is calling. He's standing at the table. He's standing there. He came to you. He came from heaven to earth. He came from Bethlehem to Galilee. And you still wouldn't go and talk to him. And he went to your table and he stood there and he's standing there and he's saying this morning, follow me. What are you going to do about it? You're going to worry about your friends, worry about your job. How would he live? If he gave this up, how would he live? See, there's a lot of questions. What about this and what about that and the what ifs? And a lot of people never make life's most important decision. They keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off for the simple reason that they're trying to calculate how everything is going to turn out first. They want to see it all. They want God to make a contract with them. They want to play, let's make a deal. Now, if I do this, will you do that? And, and how is it all going to work? And they have a thousand questions. And so they postpone the answer to life's most important question. What will you do with Christ? until they can get all the details figured out. And I guarantee you that the devil and the world and their flesh will not let them get those questions figured out. You'll be in that little, what do we call that? I call it a, we call it a remolino in Spanish, a whirlpool. You'll be in that little whirlpool going round and round and round, and you'll never get in the main current of the river if you try to answer all of those questions first. Matthew did it the right way. And if I could bring him here today, this is the testimony that he would give. And this is the advice that he would give to all of us. When Christ calls and says, follow me, make the decision. Trust him first. And then things begin to work out in life. Then things begin to work out. Well, then, 
things moved on from there. But first of all, I mean, there's always questions and problems and potential problems. But first of all, you have to decide what place the Lord will occupy in your life. Whether you're going to know about Jesus and hear about Jesus and think about Jesus or whether you're going to follow him. People who know about him and hear about him and read about him and think about him, those are not Christians unless they also happen to be people that trust him and follow him. A lot of people have a watered-down and deceived version of Christianity today because they sit at their table like Matthew. But Matthew got up, and he made that commitment to the Lord. It says here in verse 28, He left all and rose up and followed him. And he knows what, the, what he had to do to follow the Lord? It says he got up and he picked up his table and he walked off down the road behind the Lord with his table. He couldn't do that. He had a very important decision to make and he couldn't wait until tomorrow. Jesus was there. He was walking out of the city. Matthew was at the entrance to the city, at the road, the main road. He's walking out of the city. And he says, you're going to follow me or not? You're going to follow me or not? Don't tell me you'll get back to me tomorrow. If you're here today and you're not sure what your condition is, you're not sure that you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to what I'm saying to you. Don't put it off until tomorrow. There are times in life when the Lord draws near, when he walks up to our table, when he comes into close contact with us and he makes us an offer. And we have to respond. And today, my friend, is one of those days. This time is one of those moments. Follow me, Matthew says. I will. And he got up, and he followed the Lord. But you see, he did it leaving his table behind, leaving his job behind. He got up, and it says he left all and followed him. And that's what we have to do. We can't take all of our sins and our old life and drag it along and just add Christianity to that. You know, put on a little cross or a lapel pin or a cross earrings or something like that. And now we're Christians. We're living the same way we were before. You can't do that. There has to be a leaving off. The old life. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Boy, these people have got memory verses down. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. When Matthew got up from that table that day, everything had passed away. Now look, listen to me. He couldn't work out all the details at that moment. He didn't know how it was all going to be solved and worked out, but he knew this. He had to follow the Lord. That's what you do. You take that step, that personal commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then... All these other questions and details begin to get worked out. And that doesn't mean they're going to be worked out to your liking, but they're going to be worked out to his liking. It, don't mean you, it doesn't mean you won't have any enemies or problems anymore in life, but it means you'll have someone who will be with you, who will never leave you nor forsake you. If you follow him, he will be with you all the way to the end. First, you have to make that commitment to him. No deal making. No bargaining with the Lord. And then he went and he made a banquet. You saw that? This is the other thing Matthew would say to us this morning. He would say, if you're going to make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, do like the old sailors used to say when they went to war. Nail your colors to the mast. 
Nope. Don't know what that means. The colors were the flag. You get up there and nail them to the mast so everybody can see them. You don't sail the ship without the flag flying, the colors, so nobody knows what country you're from, who you belong to. Nail your colors to the mast right away. And this is what happened. He got up and he followed the Lord and he went and he made a banquet, a great banquet. And he invited all of these people. There was no way Matthew was going to be a uh, chameleon. He wasn't going to be a, what we call a stilt Christian. He showed up mysteriously here on Sunday morning and, and met with the Christians, but then he went out and he was in stealth mode the rest of the week, and nobody in the world could tell anything about him. The way he talked, the things he looked at, the people he hung out with, the way he behaved in work, the way he behaved at home with his wife or with his parents or with his family, nobody else could tell that he was a Christian. But he was one of those stealth Christians. He just invisibly showed up. He landed here, and he taxied around for an hour, and then he went out and took off, and he was gone. No, no. Matthew made a banquet, and he laid it all out. He made a banquet, and he had the Lord there. And so all of his old friends knew who he was following now. He was not with the Romans anymore. He was with the Lord. He wasn't collecting taxes anymore. He was laying up treasure in heaven. He became one of the 12 apostles. And eventually, as you know, I hope you know, he wrote the gospel according to Matthew. That's Levi. Who's to say what God can do with the life of a person who yields himself with no conditions, who yields himself to the Lord and says, I'll follow you, Lord. Wherever you lead, I will follow. But you have to let the Lord do the leading. Christians don't lead. They follow. We follow. We follow the Lord. He leads. The psalmist used to say in one of the psalms, make your footsteps my pathway. Isn't that a good way to pray? And that's exactly what happened to him. Now we come to the next publican, the second of our third, and he's not at a table in Galilee. He's in the temple. This is the publican in the temple, and we already know about him, so we're not going to spend a lot of time with him. But this illustrates perfectly what we've been looking at here in Luke chapter 5, when the Lord answered them when they complained, and he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What do you think he did with Matthew when he called him to follow him? Matthew had to repent to follow the Lord. Matthew had to trust in Christ to follow him. He says, I came to call them to repentance. And when we come to Luke Chapter 18, we see that perfectly illustrated with the Pharisee and the publican. This is the second publican. He's the publican in the temple. Verse 9, he spoke this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. 
but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or literally to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. This is not a parable. This is a parable in the sense that it's an illustration, but it's not a parable in the sense that these are fictitious people. He says he spoke a parable unto them, but he doesn't mean in this case that it's something that he made up. Because at the end, he tells you, this man went down to his house justified. He's telling it to them. A parable comes from over the same root word, the word we use for parallel. It means to take something and to lay it down alongside something else. One thing beside the other helps you to understand it. And this is what he's doing here. So even though it's a, a real, literal man, two literal men in the temple, it is in this case a parable because it's laid down beside the situation that they were in so that they could understand what they needed to do. So here we have him, the publican in the temple. Look at these two men. Were there ever any two men who were any different, more different than these two? The Pharisee. He's like some people that we know. All the problems that they know about in the world are with other people. They don't see any problems when they look in the mirror. The Pharisee, and he stood there and he raised, he puffed out his chest and he raised up his chin and, and he said he prayed with himself because there are some prayers that never get to heaven. He prayed with himself. He was impressing himself. Like I heard one preacher say in one place, he said, I got up and I started preaching. He, was, he said, I was so good, I amazed myself. He said, I wanted to sit down and start taking notes on myself. <laughs> Can you believe he really said that? But he did. I heard him. I have it on tape. <laughs> I was so good, he said, I wanted to start taking notes on myself. Well, that's this man, he said to himself. I thank you, Lord, that I am not as other men. Because he was his own Lord. He was his own God. I thank you that I am not as other men. That's the great mistake that a lot of people make. They think they're not like everybody else. They think they're a special case. And the scripture says in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You got to get that to get to first base. You don't get to, since you're all with the pennant races in the World Series, I just throw that in. You don't get to first base without Dean likes that because he likes baseball. No first base without that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Oh, well, nobody's perfect, they say, waving their hand. Oh, well, no, but don't try to hide in all of that. Don't try to hide in the crowd. You be like this man. The publican, the publican, the tax collector. Uh, he was probably one of Levi's friends. Maybe he even went to that dinner Levi had. We don't know. But he goes into the temple, and he won't even raise his head up. And he prayed to God because he knew he couldn't help himself. The Pharisee thought he could help himself. Oh, he was a fine, upstanding citizen and member of the community and a moral example to everyone and so on and so forth. He has so much baloney, he should have opened a meat market. <laughs> but this man, he wouldn't even raise up his eyes. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The difference between the publican in the temple and the Pharisee was that the publican knew he needed help. 
I don't know what God's going to have to do in your life to bring you to the place where you know you need help. But I know this. He can do it. He can do it. I don't know what God has to do when we read that and then those two men in such contrast and we see how ridiculous the Pharisee looks, but we're not willing to look at ourselves and say, that's been me. I've been that way. I've been critical of everybody else and I don't apply the same standard to myself. And Romans 2 says, who are you, that, O man who condemns another and you who condemns him, you do the same things yourself. He says, you are without excuse. Without excuse. The good thing about this publican was he knew he was without excuse. But he did something that a lot of people don't do when they're like this publican. What was wrong with this man? Well, we don't know what his sins were, but I'll tell you this. This man, when he went into the temple that day, he didn't go there to show off and to pray to himself. See, some people go to church to make a show. Some people go to church to impress their friends. and Some people just go because their parents make them. About as fake as a $3 bill. And some people go because they're seeking God. And he went for that reason. I don't know what was in it. We'll see him in heaven one day, and maybe we can ask him, but I don't know if he's going to tell us. I don't know if people talk about what their sins were in heaven. I don't really think so. No, but he felt guilty. He had done things that made him feel guilty, things that he didn't want to talk about in polite company. He felt convicted. He felt spiritually bankrupt, needy, desperate, ashamed, and probably depressed. And there he was. A lot of people, when they get into this kind of situation, and this is the way people who aren't like the Pharisee are, you have a good memory and a sensitive memory about your own sins. You know who you are when you look in the mirror. You're not fooling anybody. And you know what you've done, and you wouldn't dare tell. And you don't want people to know. And so you do what we call in Spanish, you play with two decks of cards. Doble baraja. Two decks of cards. That means one, or one face, and one behavior for when you're with the church people. And the other is who you really are. That's the other deck of cards. Oh, it would be awful if people found out, wouldn't it? And some people won't even come. They say, I'm not going to go to church because I'm not going to be a hypocrite because I do this or I've done that or I don't really believe that and, I, and God's not going to accept me. And they start thinking about what they've done and they think, oh, church people are all so good and, and I'm not that way and so I'm not going to go meet with them. They don't know anything about us. We're nothing but a bunch of sinners saved by the grace of God. The church of Jesus Christ, true Christianity, and heaven, the only way you can get in is to be unworthy. It's the only society in the universe that the requirement for membership is to be unworthy to enter. And then you trust the Lord and you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't say, God, help me improve my life. God, help me clean up my life. Lord knows you can't do that. God is the one who cleans up our life. The Lord Jesus Christ. Were they singing about that? Where the blood fell, sin died? Yeah, I was listening. You thought I was reviewing my notes, but I was listening. 
The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. You can't clean up your life. Only Jesus Christ can clean it up. This man did the right thing. He came. He came. And even when you have memory of sin and shame about sin and you feel guilty and you feel embarrassed or you feel depressed, you know what you need to do? You need to draw near to God. And Isaiah the prophet said to the people, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And this is what this man, this unnamed publican, would say to us today. You're aware of the fact that you have things in your life that disqualify you and that would embarrass you. What do you need to do? You need to draw near to the Lord and you need to call upon him because this is what God does. He has mercy on sinners. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. But what did the Lord say in the previous passage we looked at? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And there aren't any righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. Read Romans 3. Read it and see if you can find it in the middle of all those nuns there. One person who's good or righteous, there aren't any. So when the Lord said that, he said it, as we say in English, with tongue-in-cheek. He was using irony. Not that there were any righteous, but there were people who thought they were, like this Pharisee here. And what he needed to do was to realize what was in his own heart and to say, I'm the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. I'm the sinner that God came to save. But you know, this publican, this second publican in the temple, he also has a word of warning. He encourages us to come to the Lord no matter what you've done, no matter what it is, you come to the Lord and call upon him for mercy. I mean it. Because he means it. He's capable of saving you, forgiving you, and giving you a new life. Not a clean slate. He doesn't give you a clean slate. He takes the slate and throws it away and you never see it again. He can do it. Don't be like so many people who leave meetings with no change. They come and they leave the same as the way they came. Jesus says about this man, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That means God declared him righteous that day. God declared him righteous. God forgave his sins and made him a different person. When he went down to his house, he wasn't the same man that left that house. Now, what's it going to be for you today? You're going to go down to your house. You're going to leave and go to your house. And are you going to go to your house the same way you came to this meeting? Are you going to go to your house in the same spiritual condition that you came in? Matthew says, when the Lord comes by your table, leave it and get up and follow him. And when you go to the temple, this man says, do business with God. When you go to the place where God's name is invoked and where his word is studied and where his praises are sang, you go there and you do business with God and don't go home until you've done it. Don't go home the same. You see, this is the principle here. Those who exalt themselves will be abased. That's the Pharisee. I thank thee, God, that I am not as other men but the one who humbles himself before God and recognizes who he is and what he's done and calls on God for mercy, that person, he says, will be exalted. And we've got to go to the third one real quick because I told you there were three. 
There's a lot of publicans in the New Testament, but we're just going to look at these three. And this one is in Luke chapter 19. Next chapter over, verses 1 to 10, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. He's on the way to Jerusalem, you know. Verse 2 says, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press. It doesn't mean the press like CBS and all of that. It means the crowd. I'm sure your versions must say that. Because he was little of stature. He was a short man. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore to him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we're just going to take about five minutes to think about this man, Zacchaeus. But I want to make sure you get the point here. Matthew had a table. The second publican had the temple. Zacchaeus had a tree. He was a bystander. He was a spectator. It says he was curious to see Christ. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. He wasn't staying there. Put it off till the next time. He won't be there tomorrow. You already had a message before I ever came, and I understand it was a very good one about missed opportunities. I think about the prophet Jeremiah when he gave up that uh, lament for the nation of Israel when they passed by God's salvation, and he says, the harvest is ended, the summer is over. And we are not saved. All the opportunities had passed. Zacchaeus was having his last opportunity here. Now word gets around among people of the crowd of the publicans, you know. I'm sure these guys, because they didn't have anybody else to have friendship or social activity with, I'm sure they all stuck together. So he knew about Matthew. I don't doubt it. I can't say it as a dogma, but personally, I believe he knew about that. He knew some of the things that were going on. And this is at the end of our Lord's public ministry. It wasn't the first time he passed through there. But I'll tell you this, he never passed through Jericho again. This is the last stop for gas before the desert. Last stop for eternity. And here's Zacchaeus. He's not just a publican. He's the chief. He's the boss of the publicans. Boy, if they lived in nice houses, he lived down on 17-mile drive. He had it made in the shade with grape lemonade. <laughs> we used to say that when we were growing up. He was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. He was rich. How did he get rich? You already know, but look what it says down here in verse 8. 
I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything, if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I give it back to him fourfold. Guess what? That's how they got rich. And not only that, but he could take money from the other publicans. Since he's the chief tax collector, he'd get a percentage of what they took in. So he was really living, like we say in the South, high on the hog. He was curious. It says here in verse 2, verse 3, he sought to see Jesus, who he was. But that's it. That's it. Zacchaeus didn't plan on having an interview with Christ. Zacchaeus didn't plan on entering into a personal relationship with Christ. Zacchaeus just wanted to be a spectator. He wanted to see who he was. He heard about him. See? So he climbed a tree just to get a look, just to see. That was his objective. There are a lot of people like that. Maybe some people here like that today. You're curious about Christianity. You want a glimpse. You want to know something more about Christ. Oh, there's so many churches and so many ideas, and how, I don't know how we can know, and they hide behind all these excuses, and they just sit back there with their arms crossed, and there they are, Mr. Spectator, Miss Spectator. And they watch, and they listen, but they stay back there in the crowd. They stay up in the tree, and that's the way they see Jesus pass by. They want to know about him, but they want to know about him from a distance, from the safety of the crowd, in public, in the meeting. But they're not thinking about taking Jesus home with them. They're going to leave him in the meeting. You know, that's what happens in Catholic countries. They go into the Catholic church or the cathedral, and up at the front, there's a little red light, and it's not an exit light like that. Oftentimes, it's a candle or a red light at the front. You know what that means? That means that the consecrated host is in the little thing that they call the, the tabernacle. It's up there. It's being kept. The consecrated host, which they hold up and say, this is the body of Christ, the Lamb of God. Once it's consecrated, they say, God and his plenitude lives in that. And so whenever that red light is on up at the front of the church, it means God is there. And they go there and they pray to the host. They contemplate the host. They meditate on it. And they go to visit God. And then they leave him there and they go home. This is what he was doing. He sought to see Jesus, who he was, but he couldn't because of the crowd. He was little. He was short. He fell short. Romans 3 says it, doesn't it? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So he was short in more ways than one. So he went there, and from his tree, he wants to see Jesus and know a little bit more about him. But he don't want to take him home. He's got a wife. He's got servants. He's got children. He's got business associates. He doesn't want Christ to get in the middle of his house and his life. He wants to see him in that public place. You see, he went to see Jesus, but Jesus went to see him. I like the irony here. He got up in his tree. He ran before. He thinks he's ahead of the Lord. He's one step ahead of him. He runs before him, and he gets up in the tree, and he's all ready. 
But the Lord's already way ahead of him. The Lord walks up to that spot, and he gives him the laser look. It looks right up into his eyes, you know. He couldn't hide. He went to see Jesus, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and saw him. He went to see Jesus, but Jesus saw him. I like that. And the Lord sees you this morning. You came to listen. You came out of curiosity. You came out of politeness. You came with some level of interest. But I'll tell you this, right where you are this morning, the Lord sees you, and he knows you, and he knows where you live, and he wants to get into your life. And that's what he said to Zacchaeus. What good is it going to do just to go out there and climb a tree and see Jesus? What do you mean, see Jesus? you want to see what he looked like? What difference does it make what he looked like? What difference does it make what kind of face he had? What color his eyes or his hair were? Why do people obsess on these things? You're going to see him soon enough anyway in eternity. Is he going to be as your Lord and Savior and you're going to go to his house forever? Or is he going to be in judgment? But you're going to see him one way or the other. Everybody's going to see him. Now, Peter says, whom having not seen, we love. Christians, true Christians, don't need to see Jesus. And they don't need images and pictures of Jesus. We love him with a spiritual love. Peter, the supposed first pope, said, whom having not seen... You love. Zacchaeus got up there to see him. He didn't love him yet, but he was getting ready to. And the Lord Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, how did he know his name? He knows your name this morning. He could call you by name. He can tell you where you live. Because he already knows. The only trouble is you haven't invited him in there yet. And that's what he wants. He doesn't want you just to come hide in a meeting to sit there in your tree or like Matthew, stay back behind your table and look at him and watch him pass by and hear what's going on and check it all out. He wants a relationship with you. Zacchaeus, make haste. He didn't say, give it some thought. He said, make haste. Now. Right now, Zacchaeus. He says, come down. Come down, because you can't see the Lord. You can't have a relationship with the Lord if you don't come down. And we're going to close in, a, in prayer in a minute, but I want you to go off thinking about this. If you want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've got to come down. It's down. It's down here. Your mama might have given you an upbringing that was real good, but I'll tell you one thing. Before God saves you, he'll give you a good downbringing. A downbringing. Until you come to the place where you say, like that second publican, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Until you recognize that you're the sinner that he died for. And Zacchaeus, before he ever got to his house, he got down and he went and received him joyfully, it says. Took the Lord right home with him. He didn't call first to see if it was okay. Like that man in Spain, honey, uh, they want to know if I want to receive Christ. Uh, he took him home. The Lord invited himself. And he'll do that with you today. He wants to come into your life. He wants to come into your life. He wants to be the Lord of your life. He doesn't want to be a Jesus that you meet at church meetings. He wants to be the Lord Jesus Christ who lives with you in your home, where you live, in your marriage, in your family, in your job. He wants to be with you. He wants to guide you. He wants you to follow him and let him lead you through all of these things. 
He doesn't want to be somebody that you go off and meet somewhere. He says, I want to come to your house. And Zacchaeus repented. He knew he couldn't have the Lord the way he was living. And he said, when the Lord got to his house, he said, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, first of all. Publicans never did that. And a lot of rich people could give a lot more than they do to the poor, but they don't. They're like Rockefeller during the years of the Great Depression. He used to go out to the banks in New York and get out $10 and dimes or something like that and throw them out, throw the money out on the street because he enjoyed watching the poor people run, run around and scramble to get it. Well, what were $10 in dimes to him? What was $100 or $1,000 in dimes to him? It wasn't anything. Zacchaeus gave half of what he had to the Lord, to the poor, I mean, because he'd given his heart to the Lord. And then he says, whatever I took from people wrongfully, I give them four times that. How many riches do you think Zacchaeus had left at the end of that day? He didn't do that to buy his way into the kingdom. It wasn't a condition that the Lord put on him, but it was the response of his heart to things that he knew were wrong and that he couldn't be a follower of Christ and continue the way he was before. When Jesus came into his life, into his heart, into his home, things had to change, and he knew it, and he surrendered it all to the Lord that day. Could you say that to the Lord today? Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Come into my family. Come into my home. Come into my business. Take control of me. I leave the table behind. I call upon you. I hold my head down like that man in the temple and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. I get down out of my tree and I throw the doors of my home open to you. I'm not a spectator anymore, Lord. Come in and save me. Take me. Change me. And be the Lord of my life. That's what the three publicans want to tell us. It might be in a, from a table. It might be in the temple. Or it might be from your tree. But wherever you are, the Lord will speak to you. He invites you. The Lord will come to you and save you and change you if you'll open your heart to him. This is what he wants us to do today. Who is there today who needs to do what Matthew did? Get up from your table and follow him. Who is there today who needs to do what the man in the temple did? And say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know what I am and I know what I've done. God, forgive me. Forgive me, for Jesus Christ died for those things that I did and saved me. Who is there today who will come down out of their tree and stop being a spectator and say, I don't want to just see Jesus and know about him. I want to follow him, and I want him in my heart, in my life, in my family, in my house. Come in, Lord Jesus. Make no delay. Come in now. May the Lord help us to not miss this opportunity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning once again in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we pray that the lessons that we could learn from these three publicans would be applied to our heart. We pray that this wonderful opportunity might not be missed when the Lord is near, when the Lord is saying, follow me. When the Lord can be found, help us to seek him. When he says, make haste and come down, for I must come to your house. Oh, Lord, is there someone here today that needs to let him into their house? Someone here today that needs to let him into their heart. Someone here today who needs to confess, I'm the sinner you died for, Lord. Be merciful to me.
may today be like it was for each of those three men, a day of salvation. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.